We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Welcome, friends and confessors, to the conclusion of our Chaos Magic series. We're going to be doing something a bit off the beaten path today, uh, the second in our alchemical uh, anthropology series. By alchemical anthropology, what we mean is we're talking to living people about the things that they do right now, rather than reflecting on the history of a movement. We can think about anthropology and history as a sort of twin approaches to exploring the human condition. Uh, so with our alchemical anthropology episodes, uh, which, which we just began to do last year, we're, we're conducting interviews with contemporary folks. And, and this is how I wanted to wrap up our conversation about chaos magic. So we've gone through the history of chaos magic from the godfather or spiritual father Austin Osmond Spare, coming all the way up to the Temple of Psychic Youth. But uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this series, none of the alchemical actors are active practitioners in the chaos magic community. And so I decided uh, that the best approach to figure out what's going on right now, since chaos magic is uh, very much still uh, alive and well, is to interview uh, at least one, but as it turns out, two members of that Chaos Magic community. Joining me today will be Lux Estrada of the Lux Occult Podcast and Naya Ain of the Illuminates of Thanateros. But before uh, we get to that conversation, I do want to give our plugs a plug. <laughs> uh, our last episode was pre-recorded, um, so we, we didn't have any plugs that day, and I do want to get caught up with some of our newest patrons. I would like to welcome back, first of all, Christina Doe, uh, and then welcome to the crew Rod W., Jenny W., Madison, Alana S., Dennis M., Serial Mandy, uh, who did us a, a great favor and plugged us on Instagram. She's not alone, by the way. Uh, we've been hearing from a number of folks on Instagram uh, who, who are just sharing our episodes that they like or, or sharing uh, that, that they're enjoying the show. Uh, and that's fantastic. Any way that you can share us um, is very helpful. We, we, remain, we remain an indie, a small indie podcast. Uh, uh, even though we, we, we do have an audience, uh, we're, we're still... Uh, looking to connect with folks who, who might enjoy this. I, I feel strongly that we haven't connected with everyone uh, who, who, who might benefit from, from having this, joining us in this conversation. So thank you, Serial Mandy, and, and all others who have been sharing. Uh, also, Ryan XC. Uh, and I do want to do a pronunciation correction here for our uh, patron, Leilani. Leilani. I don't know how I said that last time. Uh, finally, we want to thank uh, Cosmo Gyral on Instagram, uh, also known as Alina. Uh, this I've been meaning to do for, for a couple of episodes and uh, just kept slipping my mind. Alina developed a, a unique piece of art, a unique uh, logo seal. <laughs> yeah, like a seal, you know, um, for our confessors. And uh, if you visit our Facebook group or Instagram page, you can see the beautiful art uh, that Alina came up with. Uh, and if you'd like to uh, connect with, with Alina, just, just send us a message. We'll be happy to uh, help that happen. All right. Uh, 
please think about uh, joining our Patreon. It is a growing concern uh, and needs to continue to grow uh, to keep the show going. We just did another big equipment purchase and uh, hope to be able to continue to expand the, the content that we're offering, which depends on on things like equipment purchases and staffing and that sort of stuff. So um, be very grateful and continue to be very grateful for everyone who joins us on Patreon. Let's get started. Uh, so uh, with me, I have our uh, our new friend Lux Estrada from the Lux Occult podcast. Luxa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so stoked to talk to you about this stuff. And we have Naya Ain, a friend of Luxa's. Uh, and Naya is, uh, tw- has 20 years of experience in chaos magic, is a member of the Illuminates of Thanateros, and also has experience with uh, Thelema and the Thelemites. Naya, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right, let's get started with some basic stuff here. Uh, how would you each define chaos magic right now? What is chaos magic today? Okay, I was waiting for Luxa to go first. <laughs> I was waiting for you. <laughs> You're both very polite. <laughs> Do you want to go ahead now? All right. So um, chaos magic uh, is really hard to pin down because it's not a particular magical practice at all. Uh, It's a way of approaching magical practice that puts the emphasis not on a particular belief structure, but using the the belief itself as a tool of magic. Uh, Or at least that's a classical way of defining it. I actually uh, squirm a bit with that use of the word belief, but we can get into that more later. People that are doing chaos magic are usually doing some other magic in a chaos flavor. So they might be doing something very Golden Dawn as a paradigm that they're playing, they're, they're trying on. Or they might be doing Vodou, or they might be doing Wicca or Satanism. Um, so it, the chaos magic itself is just this sort of meta frame that they're t- uh, approaching the work. Okay, so you can take a variety of practices and sort of like syncretically blend with chaos. Is that is that what you mean, Naya? Um, hopefully, uh, not syncretically blend. Um, the the jumping off point that I usually make is like looking at Alistair Crowley uh, and the work that he was doing, and then the Golden Dawn uh, tradition that carried through into his work of making these syncretic traditions, where he was trying to make one sort of master map of spiritual or occult practice. Um, you know, like in his, you know, 777 tome of like correspondences where he's blending, you know, the uh, the Kabbalah with the tarot and the I Ching and all these things together. Where with chaos magic, um, we start to separate those things again and say the I Ching needs to be the I Ching. You know, the tarot is the tarot. You can bring in some Kabbalistic elements to it, but you know, don't try to say that Vodou is reducible to Kabbalah. It's reducible to, you know, whatever, you know, shamanistic practice. These are all separate practices in putting that emphasis on paradigm shifting that when I'm doing one of these practices, that's what I'm doing. I'm not trying to reconcile it to anything else. Uh, I am just doing that practice. Chaos comes in as saying that, and then I'm going to put that down and then I can pick something else up and work with it. 
because my focus is not on indoctrinating myself into one way of doing things, but to build up a core set of techniques and, um, and skills that are generalizable across these things like control of the mind, uh, control of the body, you know, breath, meditation, trance. Uh, these core techniques come up again and again in different systems. So in a lot of ways, chaos magic is about shifting the focus from a system to those core techniques and building that, that sort of muscle uh, of the mind that show up in all these other pro- uh, practices. So in a way, we can think um, about Crowley, you know, just time period wise as, you know, the, the modernist, the ultimate occult modernist looking for that master narrative that unites all of these practices. And we can think about the chaos magicians as master postmodernists. I, I love that. Right. Looking yeah. at separation. That sounds very accurate. What, what would you add, Luxa? I think that part of the, you know, maybe philosophy behind some of this stuff or Maybe it's more of a lens through which you view your practice, but the acceptance that um, there is not an ultimate truth, like a capital T truth. There's only small t truths. So accepting this idea allows you to, it allows you the freedom to fully explore these different paradigms. Mm-hmm. So do you think of your practice as seeking your personal truths, lowercase t truths? I would say that it's more about freedom for me, like, um, and experience, just having these experiences and, you know, this kind of continual process of sort of liberating yourself from a lot of the ideas and things that are given to us, like as we go through, you know, social conditioning as kids and stuff like that, like things that might not really be useful to us things like ideas about ourselves, stories that we tell ourselves about our lives. A lot of that stuff, um, a lot of chaos magicians refer to this process as deconditioning. Mm-hmm. In my conversation about the Discordians, I use the phrase via negativa, <laughs> the stripping away of, you know, all that was. Um, and I made a reference to the medieval text, The Cloud of Unknowing, uh, which purports that God, God itself is beyond understanding. And the only way to truly understand God is to give up our understanding of everything else. Um, what do you think about this via negativa idea, the stripping away of, of thought, either of you? I, I like it. It, it. I think it's right on. Um, I, I've written some about this concept of, like, what is the fundamental paradigm of chaos magic? Is it a belief that nothing is true? in um, that only we make our own truths. And I think that there's there's a subtle uh, two flavors of chaos magic out there. One that says that there is some truth, perhaps, that's unknowable. Um, but we need to act as if there is no truth and everything is plastic because whenever we try to understand it with our minds and models, we're deforming it. So we want to get to a place where we can really fluidly move between things in order to approximate, um, you know, this unknowable truth. And then there's the other uh, standpoint that says, no, really, there is no truth, that the fundamental truth is no truth. But isn't that asserting a truth claim in and of itself? Um, 
perhaps it's you know I, I think of like Pyronian skepticism mm-hmm. um, in the sense that you know skepticism says you know a similar thing that nothing can can really be known but it's meant to act as sort of this um, cathartic agent that cleanses itself from your system because whenever you're trying to know capital T truth you're taking yourself too seriously so you know you need some skepticism to kind of flush that out and say no there is no truth i'm going to take that on as a truth and really take no truth as a truth seriously just to kind of cleanse my system of all this truth thinking (laughs) (laughs) and then when you're clean you can give up that truth (laughs) right right and just get back to doing what's important which is not thinking but doing i mean a question comes to mind just as we're starting this conversation Austin Osmondspare uh, is considered the grandfather, godfather, whatever. But Austin Osmondspare is a is a child of the Crowley times. He was a he literally interacted with Crowley, um, mm-hmm. and he was a, a modernist artist. So uh, it was uh, Spare a, a man before his time, or has chaos magic? Is chaos magic really? To, let me ask, let me put it this way: How related is chaos magic as a you know child of the '60s and the '70s? to Austin Osmond Spare in, you know, World War II and pre-World War II era? I would say it's still super related, personally. I mean, I'm guessing it would depend on who you act, but I think that Spare remains for a lot of people really what they go to. So you say man ahead of his time, then? I would say so. I mean, or we're just slow to catch up one way or the other. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Naya? I, I would say, yeah, he, he was ahead of his time, though. I mean, with trying to, you know, start a, a thing like chaos magic, um, you know, you, there's this tendency to want to reach back to something and say that this is a tradition. Um, and I think that's part of what was going on with Spare is like these core ideas that Spare had are not necessarily the same thing as chaos magic is now. But by claiming Spare as a predecessor, it kind of made it, you know, a bit more uh, kind of bootstrapping up its own sort of reputation by claiming that lineage. A mythology in a way. Um, though a lot, a lot of chaos, I think, come from the Thelemic background, uh, you know, a lot, not, of course, directly through Crowley, but, um, you know, even in like Peter Carroll's writing. Like you'll see a lot of things where, you know, it'll be like straight from Crowley. Like his definition of magic is straight from Crowley and Libra Null and Psychonaut. Um, he's not particularly good at citing such things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, here's a question then. Why? Because it's, it's spare. When you think about chaos magic, you think about spare. Why is Crowley not more forefront of the mind? Is it because Crowley is the inventor of too many things? He's also in Gardnerian Witchcraft, uh, Wicca. He's, he's too many places. Well, tr- Crowley was full of truth claims all of the time. I feel like he really did want you to think what he thought and do things his way. I mean, I think that that's why him and Spare ended up falling out is that Spare wasn't into Crowley's way of practicing and Crowley didn't like that about it. I don't know. I could be wrong, but that's the story that I heard. Yeah. Crowley thought Spare was a poor student and Spare basically seemed to think that Crowley's way of doing magic was not right. That, you know, all this systemization that Crowley was doing was just totally missing the point. 
of you know the contact with your own sub- subconscious unconscious mind is where the magic happens so this is the push and pull between something very improvised and something very ceremonial well i think too just i would like to add that like the spare method of of sigil magic is still i think what a lot of people go to so i think that that would be another place where you would say that yeah he definitely had some hand in you know or there's some there's some involvement there in in its in its creation and history, I would say. Okay. Well, yeah, the sigilization, right, is is another uh, sort of pop culture trope about chaos magic. Everyone's making sigils. For sure. And I, and I think that's at that core of the, that f- core focus on technique and building up those core skills. Um, sigil magic is like totally stripped down from uh, having to memorize a bunch of symbol systems and such, and just saying, you need a symbol that represents something. Here's a way to come up with a symbol. And then what do you do with the symbol? Well, how do you focus the mind on it? How do you reach, you know, as Carol you know, talks about this Gnostic state uh, in order to launch the sigil. Uh, Spare talks much more in terms of getting the sigil into the unconscious mind. Um, but it's, a, again, it's a, that core technique um, separate from system, which is why I think that gets uh, talked about so much. And it definitely is still a, just a huge part. Uh, sigils are often the duct tape of chaos magic. <laughs> what, what does that mean, I the duct tape? <laughs> well, it, you're, like, you're trying to figure out you know, a ritual for you know, you know, healing or you know, to help you pass that test or you know, find that job or whatever it is. And you might say, all right, I'm going to get in touch with this God form and bring it into my space. And then I need to communicate to the God form what my intent is. How am I going to do that? I'll make a sigil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I see. How, how am I going to you know, invoke the God form that I need? Oh, I don't know. I'll make a sigil for the God form. I feel like having a lucid dream tonight. How am I going to get there? I'll make a sigil for it. <laughs> so what other things are chaos magicians doing? So I think folks think about chaos magic. They think about spare. They think about sigils. We'll they get think to about God a lot of other next. things too. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we'll come to God forms. But uh, it, what other things, how ceremonial, getting back to my earlier question, how ceremonial is chaos magic? So, I, And I think there we get to that the thing that that like peter carroll and sherwin and such added that wasn't from spare which is this concept of paradigm shifting a a paradigm um often gets described as a belief system but that's a a pet peeve of mine (laughs) um because a paradigm is fundamentally it's a way of doing things it's not necessarily about what you believe But when you're working in a paradigm, you are thinking in a certain way, you are using a certain set of tools, you are building within a certain tradition. Um, I I really go back to like Thomas Kuhn and like the structure of scientific revolutions for how he talks about paradigms in science to help like seed how we should understand paradigms in magic. Um, So when you're working within a paradigm, some paradigms are very ceremonial. Uh, in which case you'd want to bring in all that sort of accoutrement of you know, whatever ceremonial magic you're working with. Um, but I think a lot of chaos rebel against that and look for very stripped down systems where it's not going to be overly ceremonial. And I think I would say from a personal perspective that for me, I might get more ceremonial when I'm doing something that is like a big ask, like something that 
I might need to convince myself a little bit more of or whatever way you want to look at it. Um, so it really might depend, too, on what the practitioner is doing at the time. So you'll do something more elaborate if you if the request is of a higher order. Indeed. Any examples you'd want to share? Well, let's see. The last sort of like thing that I got a little bit elaborate with was um, as actually doing some pathworking stuff on uh, Naya's uh, Ankh system. Ankh is not Kabbalah. Can talk about that later. But I was having a hard time okay. getting to um, one of these paths, basically getting myself in the headspace or whatever. So. I fasted for a day and I didn't sleep for a night to sort of like, you know, get closer to that trance state. And then I took like a really, really, really hot bath and like had like this intense kind of like trance ritual doing that. And, you know, from there, it was pretty easy to get where I was trying to go. But that was taking those kinds of measures are usually not necessary. And they're not purely ceremonial, right? In that case, you're uh, using your physical organism to, you know, prompt. Uh, oh yeah, this trans is state, yeah. Right? this the is a bad example of sleeping of ceremony. Sorry, yeah, right. that, just 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 elaborate, elaborate. That's fine. It's it's interesting, Lux. So don't get me wrong. I, I'm not going to take that away from you. But if we think about Crowley and the Golden Dawn, and you know, this you know, walking back and forth and making triangles, and <laughs> yeah, to be honest, <laughs> I don't typically functional. work that way. So I mean. But a lot, there's a lot of elements in my practice, though. Like, I, I sometimes joke around about how, you know, I don't know, ceremonial magic just seems too complicated for me. But then I look at my actual practice, and there are a lot of elements in there, you know, like of what you might call like classic witchcraft, kind of, you know, going back to like Paul Hewson stuff, like, you know, the, the things that you would find in an altar or whatever. Like, there are the elements there. I mean, there's the, the practice of ceremony, and then there's like the symbols and such of ceremony. Um, in like thinking of the symbols are like, I was, you know, we've been in the, the book club, uh, that we've been doing, uh, for the faith blind council. Uh, we've been reading Lieber Null and Psychonaut again after, after all these years. And, mm. um, Carol's alphabet of desire is very much from the ceremonial sort of background that you come with, you know, through, and I'm sure he did like a ton of ritual work with all these different sigils that, you know, make up this sort of factoring of the universe into these, you know, basic forces as he saw them. And then those give like, you know, a structure for building up rituals from that. Uh, though he doesn't too much elaborate beyond like laying out the symbol sets, how he would use those. Um, in my own work, I've been, uh, just drilling over and over on uh, pentagrams. Um, mm. the, the basic elemental pentagrams that you see presented in a lot of different sources uh, are pretty much never accompanied by an explanation of why those pentagrams would be the way they are. Like, why would you stop start from the, the lower left point up to the top going around to say that's banishing earth. Like, where does that come from? <laughs> the association. Uh, Laksa mentioned the Ankh system. Uh, one of the things that it does is it backfills in an explanation of why are the pentagrams like that? Um, and what that has to do with like an overall story of the creation of reality. Um, so like every night for my meditations, I'm, you know, you know, lighting a candle, saying a particular thing. And then depending on the work that I'm doing, I decide which pentagrams I'm going to draw in which quarters, whether they're invoking and banishing, whether I go Diasil or Wittershins. 
uh, clockwise or counterclockwise, fancy. Very <laughs> uh, <laughs> to know those. Um, and, you know, just paying attention to all those details. Um, and I, I've recently started doing this all with a sword and like paying attention to how I hold the sword and exactly, you know, is my wrist, you know, one way or another way when I'm drawing the, uh, the pentagrams. Uh, and trying to put meaning into every aspect of that. Um, yeah, I think of like Genesis Peorage uh, used like try to alter, A-L-T-A-R, try to alter everything, mm-hmm. uh, try to make everything significant. Um, and yeah, that definitely plays into you know, the work that I've been doing. It gets back to a pagan mindset where everything is holy, everything is sacred. Yeah. So you bring up Liber Null. Uh, I think that's great that, that y'all are reading it right now because I have some questions, or I have one particular question. Um, I, I, think I have that, a lot of questions. <laughs> well, Luxa, you are welcome. Because no, the audience kidding. now, the confessors have heard about Liber Null at this point. <laughs> the tension that I really picked up on in Carol's book was between the notion of an ego-driven practice and the dissolution of ego. Carol seems to want to have his cake and eat it. He's both talking about dissolving the ego and he's talking about using a red woman to live on in personality from lifetime to lifetime. Um, so it, I guess I'd like you both to speak a little bit about chaos magic and whether it is, I mean, classically we call this left hand or right hand or white magic, black magic. Is it ego driven or is it ego dissolving? What direction is chaos magic pushing? I would say yes. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing that probably comes down to the individual practitioner's approach. But I do think that maybe there's a place where they meet in the middle. I, I would push back some on the the notion that what Carol is laying out here is essential to what chaos magic is today. This was like in a way I when I'm reading Libernal and some of the claims that Carol makes there, I wonder if this is not sort of a hyper sigil, um, similar to the way we're familiar with like uh, Grant Morrison and the Invisibles wrote himself in as a character into the series. Uh, as a magical act. Yeah, like real quick, a hyper sigil is defined as like um, a creative project that sort of tells a story. I don't know. There's a few different definitions, but this is like the technical one I heard. But yeah, like the in terms of like the invisibles, it's like the the series itself was a sort of like miniature universe, which Morrison placed himself in and made things happen to the character. And that was reflected in the real world. Okay. Yeah, so sort of generally, I, I take a, a hyper sigil is whenever you've got a working that it it is using the the, the fundamental concept of sigil magic, um, in that you are trying to communicate things through the subconscious, but it's going way outside of the bounds of writing a symbol on a piece of paper. Um, that it's just something you know above or beyond sigil. Um, but in you know, in the sense of Liber Null, Carol writing about all these capabilities and then getting a book out there and all these people reading it, uh, feeding into his capabilities as a magician, perhaps, 
because of the belief that he's creating in other people. About- so you think the wilder stuff about red women and being reborn and that sort of thing is part of this kind of, I almost want to say LARPing. Yeah, when we discussed <laughs> this, we had no idea where that might have came from. I'm guessing possibly out of like something like Castaneda, but I have no idea where he came up with that stuff. You know what it actually reminds me of, though? Like um, in Dungeons and Dragons, there is a kind of a joke item that a dungeon master who is the person who is in charge of running the game might play. It's kind of a prank that they might play on on a player who, uh, whatever, might get a little bit out of hand or something. But there's an item called the head of Vecna. Um, not to get not to get too far into the lore, but like there's other items like the hand of Vecna. In order to use this item, you have to cut off your own hand and put the hand there, right? And the head of Vecna is a sort of joke because the player's character will cut off their own head and and die, and they won't be able to to use the magic item, and it's a trap. And that's sort of like how that little chapter read to me. I was like, this really sounds like a dumb trap. <laughs> In that case. It seems more ego dissolving then, in theory. I mean, we can take Michael Aquino's point that any ego, any practice that claims to be ego dissolving, or I guess uh, Anton LaVey to that extent, is, you know, when we claim to be good Christians and we're dissolving our ego and we're serving others, we're actually serving ourselves because that's what makes us feel good. Um, and is that sort of what the chaos magician is doing, is playing with both sides of the challenge of working past the self, past the ego? It's certainly trying to break down the the concept of self and ego. Um, And I think it's in order to move to a place where you're not attached to any particular way of thinking or being uh, and can move fluidly between those. Uh, And now whether like we regard that as like expanding the capabilities of self or annihilating the self, I think is that sort of, you know, are we talking black magic, white magic, sort of is it a spiritual quest or is it ultimately that you're trying to create this super ego? Um, that, that, like, uh, not quite the right word I'm looking for there. <laughs> right, in a Freudian sense, right? I feel like it's sometimes very hard to parse out too. I mean, I feel like, as you mentioned on my show, Rob, there is an honesty to practices like Satanism where you're saying like, yes, I'm helping you because it makes me feel good, right? Like, mm-hmm. Um, whereas I always found there to be like a little bit of a, a self-delusion in, in, you know, this idea of like complete altruism, right? Like I'm just doing it to make you happy. Like it, that's, it doesn't seem natural to me. It doesn't seem like in line with our nature as animals, but again, this is just my point of view. So I think that there could be something about like, that honesty of accepting that and like really going into that and saying, well, what does that actually mean? And why, like, why am I into that? And like really doing that like deep introspection where you do start to strip away those layers and find yourself probably at the same place as the person that was doing it the opposite way. Well, I mean, I, I take issue with a lot of what Carol writes about morality um, because it it seems like he's overly caught up with this notion of rejecting the, the sort of superficial morality, you know, and placed upon one by society. You know, Satanism similarly, I think, gets a little bit carried away with that. Yeah, and I think he he overstates some things as far as there there being sort of no moral 
that, that everything is completely arbitrary, I think he says, in a few places. And I, I just simply don't think that's true. Um, you know, I think if we look at simply game theory, we see that there are moral rules that can be derived by nothing other than just sort of mathematical considerations um, that, you know, you need to build alliances, you need to, you know, say things that will be believed and by other people. If you, you know, if you make a habit of lying, it's a lot more work. <laughs> yeah, but that um, still operates from a place of self-interest, right? Oh, oh, for, for sure. Um, but saying that, that morality itself is, can be constructed from these sort of self-interest sort of standpoint. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily a rejection of morality to say that the, the, you have self-interest. Depending on the direction that self-interest is pointing, yeah. Yeah, and when well, it's also relying on, you know, what are your fundamental intuitions? And not everyone has the same intuitions, but majority of people, you know, feel good about making other people feel good. And, you know, feel guilt when, you know, they cheat something, somebody out of something. You know, it seems at places that Carol would be advocating, well, you should go around cheating people and practicing not feeling bad about it because then you're liberating yourself. Yeah, that seems stupid, right? Yeah, I, I don't see the, the point in that. And I think a Satanist would also take issue there, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, like you said, Naya, like there's there's something to this, like, I don't say like, Platonist idea of like what is good for everybody is also good for you in general, right? Like, what's good for the many is good for the one. This isn't Generally. always true, obviously, but I mean, yeah, in <laughs> right. I think that in general that's okay. Right, and in utilitarian ethics, of course, have their drawback. We that the the imaginary experiment of the person, the one person suffering in the town, so everyone else can be having a good day. Can we really all have a good day if we know one person has to suffer in great pain? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All those thought experiments. <laughs> uh, this is great. Let, let's. Can I turn turn the conversation a bit here to thinking pop culture wise? Sure. Sure. We ready for this? So, God forms. Um, my first introduction to chaos magic was probably uh, a podcast that is much more popular than mine. Uh, and part of the conversation about chaos magic, and I think this is, you know, for folks who know chaos magic, this is one of the, um, I guess, images they go to or illusions of, of ritual or use of sigil that you can make Batman your god, that you can make Superman your god. Go for it. Let the Marvel Universe be your personal pantheon. Thoughts on this? Um, I would say, like, in general, if you're like into it and that like turns you on or whatever, like give it a shot, try it. Um, I've heard a lot of people have said that like the experimentation with that stuff proved not to be quite as effective as using these kind of classical archetypes, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Follow on what Lexa is saying there that it's a matter of, is it effective, which is something that, you know, should actually, you know, do the work, do the journaling, see if it's actually an effective approach. But generally, these systems that have evolved from a lot of investment over time uh, are richer. Like if you start with like the DC universe as like your, your pantheon, you can probably get a lot of results with that. But don't expect that the DC universe is going to be particularly well suited for 
being symbols for all of human experience, for everything you need, mm-hmm. you know, because it was never intended to be. Sure. And, and it's funny, like in a way, like you'd be better starting with like My Little Pony, because uh, My Little Pony at least started with a thesis that it was supposed to be representing more of human experience, you know. But... <laughs> Friendship is indeed magical. <laughs> You heard it here, folks. If you're going to get started. <laughs> Go ahead, Naya. But, yeah, with these pop, pop culture systems, I, I mean, on the one hand, you've got a lot of belief investment. And then there's like, there's so much energy just out in the world, people in, investing in a lot of this pop culture stuff, which can get you some easy wins. But there, there's also like sort of a... a a drawback of the chaos magic approach that comes out with this, which is often it gets lazy that when somebody starts work where they're going to be working with, you know, Batman or Wonder Woman or something like that, are they actually going to work with it enough to get real results? When you start working with something, there's often this sort of beginner's luck thing that happens. That like first time you sit down and like, you know, you meditate, a lot of people like will hit meditation states, like the first couple sessions that they find themselves like a week into it, like I can't get back there now. A similar thing sort of happens when you're working with some of this pop culture stuff, I find that you can get immediate results when you just pick it up and you try and experiment. But when you try to get consistent results with it, uh, you kind of fall off a cliff. Better to make the long, slow journey. In my opinion, and that's what I found. And then you can get like this sort of chaos magic encouraging you to put the focus on paradigm shifting where you jump from one system to another system to another system. And every time you sit down to do something, you think, all right, well, what what God forms am I going to call on? What are my symbols going to be? That sort of stuff where you end up with a very shallow experience and a wide range of things but don't take the time to really deepen the experience into anything in, in particular. So what sorts of God forms would you both suggest or how to go about finding God forms? Um, well, if you're interested in doing like deity work, um, working with God forms or whatever, I would probably suggest going with something that like is aesthetically attractive to you. First of all, like um, if something like draws you to it, if it's calling out to you, then I would just go with that. Um, and I would, the way that I do deity work is I, it's kind of like hanging out with the deity. You know, like we chill, we party, um, I talk to her. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's really personal though. I mean, it's, it's about forming like a sort of personal relationship with this thing, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say the the same building that personal relationship uh, with the, whatever pantheon that you're working with, uh, with whatever God forms that you're working with, even if you, I mean, you don't even have to be working with God forms, mm-hmm. um, but to build up that personal relationship with the system uh, is, is crucial. Let's talk a little bit about chaos magic uh, in mainstreamism. I'll use inism. Uh, <laughs> so this is something my co-host and I had a conversation about um, a couple episodes ago. Uh, And Olivia said that she thought chaos magic was mainstream. And I pointed out to her (laughs) that occultism is a subculture and that chaos magic is a subculture within a subculture. 
Um, however, I, I think her point's well taken that chaos magic has a presence in pop culture that, let's say, the Thelemites do not necessarily in, in 2021. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, on how, how mainstream is chaos magic? Well, I feel like, first of all, like the techniques of chaos magic seem pretty ubiquitous. Like there seems to have been a lot of adoption of them into a lot of other traditions, like eclectic witchcraft, for example. But I don't think that as like a a culture like a, or whatever, like a subculture itself, that it's that mainstream. Like I think a lot of people do use the techniques that came out of it maybe, but they don't really recognize that. Um, I actually taught a class about sigils at this guild that I'm a part of a while ago, and, and a lot of people came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, I've been doing some of this stuff in my practice and I never knew that it was associated with chaos magic. And now I'm super curious about chaos magic. And so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, the, the pop culture penetration for chaos magic, <laughs> I mentioned My Little Pony. There's like a whole character that seemed to be based on chaos magic in My Little Pony. <laughs> Wait, what's its name again? I think you told me about this. It just—it was just Discord. It was like okay. Discord, the goddess Eris. Yeah, in this, he's like this chimera, and at one point, he's actually seen holding a staff with a chaos star on it. Yeah, I, I, my my kid would know more about this. A, I was exposed to some of this as <laughs> a younger child. It was a favorite show. Um, <laughs> There's always a point when, like, we need to ask kids about shit. Because <laughs> so there's a chaos magic My Little Pony. So yeah. So are you saying Naya that the overlap between pop culture and chaos magic pulls chaos magic more into, let's say, pop culture? I for sure. I mean, if you look at places where chaos magic shows up, I mean, like the chaos fear, right, came from science fiction and fantasy, right? This was My- Michael Moorcock's book. Uh, like the internal champion series uh, introduced the, the the character Elric and the this concept of the chaos sphere and the original depictions of that then got picked up from fantasy writings and then, you know, brought into chaos magic as the symbol. So in a lot of ways it had a birth in pop culture. Uh, so it's only fair that, you know, pop culture co-ops it back. <laughs> Yeah, the Cthulhu mythos is very popular with a lot of chaos, or at least it was. I'm not sure how popular it still is, but um, definitely a big part of the scene for a while there too, I think. And I mean, you think about things like, I know we already mentioned Grant Morrison's The Invisibles, super popular. Grant Morrison's been a pretty outspoken, you know, ambassador of chaos magic, I think. Yeah, we're doing uh, the Necronomicon next year. And it's probably the same time period that Simon is putting the Necronomicon out there. Yes, yes. Right, that chaos magic is taking hold. Like, it's that whole 70s occult scene. The Discordians and the Subgeniuses are popping around mm-hmm. and all the same time period. What about, um, so people come to me, and I think it's just because of my podcast, uh, but I don't know what to tell them. Do you have people come to you and say, uh, I just got started in chaos magic? What do you tell these folks? Or, or what, maybe what, what, what are some alarm bells that you're, you think to yourself, oh, this is not going in the right direction? Advice for the newbie. Write everything down and meditate. <laughs> yeah. Meditate, magical journal. It's like doing chaos magic is fundamentally about doing a lot of work. There's a lot of. There's a lot of lazy chaos magic out there. 
Yeah, when I think of things like emoji magic and a lot of things like that, where people just take that starting point of, well, anything could work as far as magic goes. Therefore, this very lazy thing that I'm, I'm doing could be effective magic, which, you know, the world's a funny place. Sometimes it is. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it always seems to be that reality's playing some sort of joke on us. You know, to get that's that consistent results and consistent practice, you know, meditation, journaling, like Lexa said, um, those are the cornerstones. So if you want to be a chaos magician, you have to be ready to meditate and journal. How how often? Like, what what is my time commitment, right? I mean, this is what the young magician would want to know. Well, Libra MMM and uh, Libra Null and Psychonaut is still like the go-to reference for that. You know, describes, you know, kind of in rough outline, you know, meditation practice that folks would need to do. But these are really daily practices. So if somebody's really wanting to get into chaos magic, it's picking up a daily practice at least once a day, indefinitely. Yeah, it's really about doing little things over time, at least for me. Um, And you just sort of like build up this, I don't know if momentum is the right word, but you know, the the continual practice of these simple techniques like meditation and journaling for a prolonged period of time, you know, it's a practice, right? It's not, you're not waving your hand and making huge sweeping changes necessarily. So you got to keep the ball in the air, so to speak. You got to keep at it. And I think that that's a theme in a lot of different, you know, practices. I think that this kind of like commitment to like this kind of daily or I don't know, that seems a little bit too reductive, actually. <laughs> but I think that this is a common theme in, in many different paths. Well, I mean, if you want to get good at anything, it, you basketball or podcasting or <laughs> researching or art, it, you've got to keep at it, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it comes up in particular with chaos magic because there's there can be a tendency away from that sort of work ethic because it's like, well, if anything could potentially be a magical act, then, you know, it can invite sort of a sloppy, you know, well, everything's magical already, so I'm not going to dedicate any time. Well, then why, yeah, why, then why can do anything, right? Why do it at all? I mean, everything sort of is magical, but uh, yeah. Let me ask this, uh, as somebody who has, uh, you know, was sort of new to chaos magic insofar as I'm new to each of my topics before I start to research them, Folks who are getting into chaos magic, um, it's my experience that there are a lot of dark holes on the internet that you can wander down. Is there any words of warning or caution about good places to look and bad places to look for information on getting into this? I'm I'm looking at you, Luxa. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, um, unfortunately, there like a lot a lot of the occultism scene. um, Unfortunately, does have some like unsavory elements maybe would be one like way of putting it like um things like esoteric hitlerism which apparently is a fucking thing like and so i mean yeah i would say like 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 with anything like if you're going to be joining a group or like getting involved with people or whatever i mean do your diligence do your research if something strikes you intuitively or instinctively is like not being chill then like listen to yourself for sure like listen to yourself before you listen to any other so-called authority um 
I there's you know places I would recommend you know you could you could listen to my show you could listen to my my friend's show the Faith Blood Council podcast about chaos magic um but yes in terms of like the internet it's a scary place be careful I don't know <laughs> yeah so starting with it I had I don't know if you listened Luxa to the most recent the AOS I suggested that folks listen to chaos magic podcasts you know because you know Olivia and I are very clear that. We are not providing a guide for practice. We are providing a history of occultism. Yeah. Um, and that we suggested. So you think that, you know, most podcasters in the chaos tradition are, are pretty responsible? I mean, it's it's tough because you anyone can start a podcast, right? Well, yeah, I don't know if there are a whole lot of chaos magic podcasts right now. There's a lot of Wit- Wicca and uh, pagan, neo-pagan podcasts. Mm-hmm. Other than that, yeah, the, and it the, is, it's, it's wide open. It's discussed on a lot of like really quality podcasts. I'm just not sure if there's one that's like thematically, other than the ones I mentioned, like kind of focused on it. I don't know. So if they tune into your podcast, they, they, they could get some tips on books to read and things like this. Hopefully. Yeah, I try. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's one of those things where a, a lot of chaos end up invested in a particular practice. Um, so it's not. I guess it's not too surprising that finding a chaos magic podcast would be a little bit difficult because you know you might find a, a chaos magic practitioner, you know, doing you know talking about voodoo all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. because that's where they actually have invested most of their effort and their expertise is in that, even if they're bringing chaos magic technique to bear on it. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of great podcasts out there made by chaos magicians, but that aren't necessarily about chaos magic. Right. Because it's about the specific thing that they're invested in. Yeah. Like, I mean, like pragmatic, pragmatic is a great example of like a really cool podcast that, you know, it's not necessarily just about the praxis. All right, shall we do a, a lightning round? I've got a few topics I'm going to toss out there, and I'm saying lightning round, but if we end up talking for more than, I don't know, lightning would otherwise permit, that's perfectly fine too. So these are topics that um, I attempted to research, but quickly became daunted by because I have to get a whole year of episodes together, and I said, <laughs> this will take me, this will take tar- far too much of my life uh, <laughs> to actually understand this. I do want to say that, like, calling it a lightning round implies that there might be a prize at the end is that the case (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i guess a a hearty pat on the back virtually (laughs) a virtual pat on the back trying to figure out how much effort i should put (laughs) (laughs) i think these will will be easy but we'll we'll find out all right let's start with the first one um these are these are topics that the listeners have suggested to me and and that i simply can't do so let's let's see if we can knock them out right here in 15 minutes or less (laughs) and you're gonna you're you're already laughing lux you're gonna laugh when i say the first one the ice wars oh no (laughs) which is mostly in german that's the reason i cannot research this too much of it is in german i don't speak german so um what, what are the ice wars so l- largely not relevant anymore. Um, there, there's a Wikipedia page on it that I think covers pretty much the main things that like people would need to know. That there, there was infighting that was particularly within the Illuminatus of Thanateros. But all I know about it is from the Wikipedia. <laughs> that, <laughs> 
I love that. Because <laughs> it, it just it just is it's not relevant to what's going on today. There there was apparently some like wild personality clashes and falling outs that people had uh, over some pretty suspicious claims that yeah there was some like sort of like sinister elements of like this idea of like oh only people with this type of heritage can use this special ice magic it sounded pretty familiar to something that we heard about before in germany just saying and it was german right this was coming from german magicians um i think the person goes by the name of frater ud right now that was but i don't know to what extent like this uh, this was like a long time ago right so i don't know how that has evolved and changed or anything interesting so by a long time ago we mean the like the 80s not not like the 40s sure <laughs> long not enough for a person Nazis. to change though right right <laughs> right <laughs> possibly i don't know okay so uh check mark you, you are you both satisfied with that yeah sure. I, I wouldn't spend any more time on it because the <laughs> the characters and personalities whatever that that blew up over that it's it doesn't come up again in, anymore. Uh, I haven't heard anything, any follow on to that story, um, period. <laughs> so the idea good. of the sort of nationalist magic is outre. Let's do the next one then. Uh, this one may be a bit more serious, but also has a pop culture reputation. The Ellis Sigil. Oh, yes. Okay. So this is something that was, I'm pretty sure, invented by a dude named Ryan Lloyd. Um, and like as part of like, I think part of his work with like the DKMU. Um, and so this is the linking sigil LS. Um, so the idea behind this thing was that this is a sigil that would form like a network, right? And people could use the sigil to tap into that network or they could put the sigil places where they wanted to like make it more magically active. Um, there's a lot of different like uses for it but as people were starting to like play around with this concept and like this kind of maybe like current of magical energy that was created by all of these people using this thing um they started to notice that there was sort of like this emergent what they described as like a sentience like in the in this kind of like current um which they started to call ellis e-l-l-i-s as like um i guess it was considered a god form um and they noticed it by using the sigil in different locations and play, uh, in situations. Um, well, yeah, by working with like the sigil and the current, it started to like, I guess, reveal itself to the practitioners. Hmm. And there was uh, resonant similarities between what they were experiencing back from the sigil. Yeah, a lot of people describe this particular entity as being like a, a middle-aged woman with like red hair and stuff. Like there's some pretty specific descriptions out there. It's pretty interesting. You could definitely go look up um, some of the DKMU's writing on this. I think there's a one called like Liber Sigillum that talks about it. The DKMU. Yes. Now, anything on the Ellis sigil? Uh, I've not worked with it. Uh, it does strike me though that like the the concept of the network that they were building, it probably borrowed inspiration from the Temple of Psychic Youth and their network and stations and the Sigil of Three Liquids work. Hmm. Um, though I, I'm not sure if there's any explicit like call out back to that in D the DKMU stuff. And that like kind of concept of like using a sigil to kind of like create a network too is something that I thought about a lot in like my green or not mine, but like the green mushroom project that, you know, it's kind of the same concept in a way. 
that a wider group of people sharing the same thing yeah, will all... have similar effects and raise yeah. the vibration, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, everybody kind of contributing and, you know, putting energy into this thing that has this unifying sigil for it creates a cumulative effect. All right, well, let's let this be the last lightning round then. Uh, Chaos Magic My Little Pony. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Are the bronies are the bronies doing chaos magic? Do we think they must be? There must be a brony out there doing some chaos magic, right? Yeah, I, I'm sure. Well, that's what gets back into the pop culture magic, and then just generally eclectic magic. Right. And, you know, you, you hear the story again and again where someone said, "Oh, I was doing all this sort of eclectic and pop culture magic," and then I heard about chaos magic, and I'm like, "Wow, I was already doing chaos magic." <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anything else uh, either of you want to get on the record before we close up today on, on the subject? Yeah, sure. I would say like just in general, like if you're interested in this stuff, um, definitely don't overthink your own practice. I would say this is probably true for most spiritual practices. Like don't overthink it. Like if you're interested in like starting whatever spiritual practice, trust your own instincts over whatever anybody else tells you. Um, do your own research whenever possible keep a great record of your endeavors and don't forget to meditate. Uh, I, I second that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> if you know, seek out your local community, you know, again, you'll, you'll find people doing chaos magic uh, in all sorts of communities, whether that's like a local Thalemic group or golden dawn or, you know, whoever just meditation. Uh, the first uh that I hung out with, uh, you know, Zen Buddhist temple was, was a place in common. Um, so they're they're out there all over the place. If you're specifically interested in the IoT, there's uh, the IoT-NA.thanateros.org for North America, and then there's other ones out there. We we are still around and still doing cool stuff. <laughs> so yeah, how do folks find their chaos magic community? They should just look for thelemites or whoever's whoever's handy in the community um well there uh, a lot of places there you'll find workshops and classes you know maybe not so much right now with covid and such uh there's mm-hmm. many things online um you could ask your local like occult bookstores if there's anything going on that they know of a lot of times you know they might be tapped into that kind of community great yeah uh, my uh my partner ninov and i uh we teach uh, classes uh, here in Chicago um, through the Occult Bookstore or the, the Occult Society of Chicago. There's a festival called Babylon Rising, which is a chaos magic, thalamic magic festival that happens in Indiana. Uh, well, again, not this year, but ho- hopefully again <laughs> before too long. So, yeah. Very cool. Thank you both very much. This has been an excellent conversation. I, I'm sure our confessors feel the same. Very grateful for you both coming and speaking to us today and helping me understand chaos magic. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having us. I love your show and everything, so it's a pleasure to be here. That That's the only reason I let you in, Luxon. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I hereby adjourn and declare closed 
This meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. I want to thank once more uh, Luxa and Naya for giving of their time to us so generously and of their expertise. And so concludes our 2020-2021 year, so to speak. Uh, We record from Valentine's Day to Valentine's Day. That's how our years function. So this is the end of our third year. Uh, Wow. Moving into year four. So here's some things to look forward to in our fourth year of podcasting. We're going to hit episode 100 this year, which is a big milestone. And uh, (laughs) something that'll be a little bit uh, numerically complex, actually, because um, we've put some extras on the uh, feed over the years. So when your feed says that we're at episode 100, we won't actually be at the full episode 100. There's going to be a couple to go after that. Yeah, but but we'll we'll let you know we'll let you know when when we hit that and we'll uh, we'll make some auditorily not unpleasant uh, sounds of celebration in into your ears. Fun. Uh, and what you're really looking for, though, is what's coming next. Uh, and what's coming next, our next season, is on satanic ritual abuse. Now you're going to say, Rob, uh, haven't we already done this? We've done it, sort of. Uh, In the fourth year, what I would like to do is return to topics that uh, I've left sort of half-explored or partially explored uh, over the years. And this one really is uh, has become a, a major research passion of mine, understanding the claims of satanic ritual abuse. Um, but, but, but we're not going to get too esoteric with it. We're going to do the big picture here. Because when we talk about satanic ritual abuse in the 1980s and 1990s, what we're really talking about is a tradition of abuse claims and murder claims going all the way back to biblical times and even before. Uh, But we used to call this satanic ritual abuse or ritual evil the Black Mass. So that's how we're going to get started. We're going to explore the Black Mass. And over the course of this series, I plan to connect the Black Mass, the uh, ancient claims made against Gnostics and even Christians uh, for conducting Black Masses, all the way up to what I consider to be a 21st century Satanic Panic Revival, a revival of the Satanic Panic Uh, in in conspiracy form, uh, not to give too much away. Uh, So over the course of about five episodes, we're going to be making that link. Uh, And and I think it's going to be fun and uh, and exciting because uh, it it does impact our culture so much today. I want to thank each and every one of you for the time you have spent with us this year. For the time you have spent with us in previous years. Um, for the time you've spent with us, period. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to speak with all of you um, and inviting us into your ears and, and inviting us to speak to your minds um, it, it is not something that we take for granted. It's uh, something that we truly, truly treasure here at Occult Confessions. Um, and uh, we, we plan to continue to honor uh, that invitation uh, that you offer to us every other week uh, by providing the best, uh, best researched, best considered 
most thoughtful explorations of the wide world of magic and occultism and the paranormal and conspiracy that we possibly can. Thank you.